I'll invite you, if you will, to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to start reading uh, as a beginning point the first uh, 16 and a half verses of uh, Revelation chapter 1. Then we'll stop and make some comments. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in strength. And when I saw him, I said, Jesus, what have you done with your hair? (laughs) I want to talk to you about the letters to the seven churches. Now, in order to do that, uh, we're going to have to set the stage a little bit and talk about the the setting for the revelation. John received the the message to these seven churches. And it's interesting how that that so many times people look for the mystical when the the simple is the the way that God um, speaks to us. It's like the, the, the story they tell about the little boy that was in Bible school. 
And the Bible school teacher said, uh, Johnny, um, what's brown, has four legs and a big bushy tail? And being in Bible school, uh, Johnny said, well, teacher, I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but I'm not sure how it fits. I think people do that with the book of Revelation. They look for some mystical something when the, when the simple, simple truth is right before them. These are letters to seven churches. These, and, and you may have heard things that I, like I've heard through the years about how these letters to the churches represent different ages during the church history and church uh, period and so forth. And, and there are always going to be things that relate. But these are letters to seven churches that were in Asia, what we know of as modern-day Turkey. Now, John was the author, and notice, or did you notice, maybe I should ask the question, did you notice that John mentioned his name three times in the first several verses? He said this is the the message that was given by John, his servant John, to give to you. He said, I, John, and then he talks about himself again just a few verses later. Why is that? Well, that has something to do with the, the historical context of when this was written. Now, at the time that this was written, the, uh, well, let me say it this way. The revelation came about 95 A.D. At that time, John is the last living apostle. He's watched all the original 12 killed, most of them m- martyred. For example, Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia. was killed by an axe. Mark died in Alexandria, Virginia after being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece. Peter was crucified upside down by Nero. James the Just, the leader of the church, the book of Acts tells us about uh, his death. He was thrown over a hundred feet down from the southeast pinnacle of the temple when he refused to deny his faith in Jesus. After that, he was beheaded. James, the brother of John, was beheaded at Jerusalem. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was flayed to death. And Andrew was whipped severely and crucified in Patras, Greece. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was bludgeoned to death while preaching. Philip was crucified in Hierapolis. Simon the Zealot was sawn in half in Persia. Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1, was stoned to Jerusalem by the Jews and then beheaded. Barnabas, one of the group of the 70 disciples, was stoned to death at Salonica. Timothy was killed by a mob in Ephesus after speaking out against idolatry during a parade to Diana. And Paul was beheaded by the emperor Nero in Rome in A.D. 67. John knows all these things. Paul's been dead for about 28 years. And John is the last living apostle, original apostle. But not only that, he's seen many of the first generation Church leaders killed, many by crucifixion, many by other terrible means. He's in a position where he is looked at as the last father. Now, at the time that that John writes these things, there's a, um, the Roman emperor, the Caesar, in place is Domitian. Now Domitian poisoned his brother to become Caesar. And later it it led to his death when the Roman Senate finally took action against him. But Domitian was a paranoid guy. 
And it wasn't just that he persecuted the church. He persecuted anybody that might be against him. Now, there were different classes of prisoners in, uh, in Rome at that time. There was the common criminal, common thief, or whatever the case might be, you know, the, guy, the lawbreaker. But the more important criminals to the Roman government and the, and the leaders, the Caesar, were the political criminals or those that took a different political position. Those were the ones that he really was afraid of. He banned astrology because he was afraid that somebody might predict by the stars his demise. He did away with or or hindered greatly the Roman aristocracy because he didn't want powers, uh, influential families having an opportunity to, to dislodge him from his position. He persecuted philosophers because he didn't want anybody to have a differing view. The, the elite had to go underground because anybody that was considered to be somebody, someone with influence, someone that could yield influence over, over other people, was considered a great threat. So John, as the last and certainly the most prominent of the church leaders, John was a legend in his day, in his final days, because he was the one, the disciple that Jesus loved. He witnessed Jesus walking on the earth. And so Domitian, out of the blue, for no legitimate reason, took John captive. John was living in the city of Ephesus on a hilltop overlooking the city of Ephesus at the time, and he was summoned to Rome. So he was taken by armed guard to Rome. Now, folks, you need to understand something, and that is all these guys that were martyred they could have gotten out of their, their death. They could have avoided their death by simply saying the stories of Jesus isn't true. Simply saying he didn't really die on the cross and, and was raised from the dead. That's all it would have taken. It's not some big event. It wouldn't have taken some years of doing something to satisfy the Roman government. All they would have had to do, any and every one of them, All they had to do is say the story of Jesus being raised from the dead is not true. You need to realize that their deaths, each one of which of these guys, with the possible exception of Barnabas and Timothy in the list that we gave, each one of these guys saw Jesus crucified and they saw him after he was raised from the dead. We don't know about Timothy. We don't know about Barnabas. Maybe them too. But every one of these guys were eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And all they would have had to do is say the story isn't true. And they were willing to die instead. Folks, people don't die for a false story. The martyrs of the church, then and now, are a witness to the fact that Jesus is alive. Well, so John is summoned to Rome. He's taken in by Domitian. Domitian was a, uh, well, he was a nut job. I'm not even sure he was the greatest nut job of all the seizures. But Domitian was one of these guys, and now this part was not uncommon. It was not uncommon for seizures to be claimed to, or, or pronounced as deity. It was unusual for them to be pronounced as deity while they were still alive. But Domitian did that for himself. Domitian established a law throughout Rome that everybody had to confess and say 
that he was Lord and God. And everybody was commanded to burn incense unto Caesar, Domitian, Lord and God. At certain periodic times where they'd come to the cities when they'd pass certain statues of him and so forth. It was intended to be done every day for those that lived in the cities. You can realize very easily what a problem that creates for the Christian. And these are the days of the revelation. These are the days when the revelation was given to John. Because many times Christians would leave the cities where they wouldn't have to deal with and be observed by those who did not believe in Jesus. Because they were obvious in their refusal They didn't make a public show of it. That's not what I'm saying. But they would just ignore the edict to burn incense to Caesar and confess him as Lord and God. Now, the church was thought, therefore, by the Roman government, not just Domitian, but other Caesars as well, to be subversive to the Roman society. And that wasn't the case with the Christians. Christians were willing to go along just to get along and, and that kind of stuff. But when it came to confessing Caesar as their Lord and God, that was the dividing line. And that's where a lot of Christians were killed. This was the issue when Domitian questioned John in in Rome. He gave him a chance to deny his faith. He gave him a chance to confess Caesar as Lord and God, and John wouldn't do it. There are historical documents that tell us that at that point Domitian became so enraged that he commanded John to be thrown in a vat of boiling oil. And so it was done. It was prepared. Time was appointed. He was thrown into this vat of boiling oil and everybody expected him to die, screaming and crying for his life and so forth. But he went into the oil And after a period of time, he just stepped out of the old completely unharmed. Well, Domitian has a little different attitude now about what we're going to do. So what does he do? He does the only thing that he can do or that he knows about doing for political prisoners. He sends him to the Isle of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos was about 60 miles off the coast of, of Ephesus. It's a place, a prison um, rock. It's the Alcatraz of the day, literally. It's a prison rock that contains both common criminals and political prisoners. The common criminals, when they get to the Isle of Patmos, are worked as slave labor by the Roman guards. The political prisoners are turned loose. They're not worked. They're not held in chains. They're turned loose to fend for themselves. The idea on the part of the Romans is there's not enough food. There's not enough sustenance on the island. They'll die of starvation. However, they, they uh, uh, formed communities and did the best that they could to help one another out and so forth. Many did die of starvation, and it certainly was a, a, a terrible existence. But there are many stories that are told about the things that John did when he went to the Isle of Patmos. There are stories about the miracles that he performed. 
There's a story about um, uh, someone else, another political prisoner that's there that's, uh, that's very similar to the Acts 13 story when Elimus the sorcerer withstood Paul. There was the same type of experience that John had on the Isle of Patmos. But more importantly, I guess, than anything else is that when John was there, he evangelized the, the, the island. He created a church there. He started getting people saved, turned on to Jesus and so forth. And after a period of time, Domitian was removed from office. He was killed and removed from office. And John was set free. Now, folks, again, realize the times that they're living in. Now, the the next Caesar that came along was a picnic compared to Domitian. It gave the church two years of reprieve. But then after him, the next guy that came along was even worse than Domitian when it came to the persecution of the church. So it was a roller coaster ride for the Christians. They didn't know what to expect from one moment to the next. And you could well understand that when uh, one Caesar goes out and the next Caesar comes in, usually by death, it's not like there's an email or text or a news report that goes out among the the Roman Empire, and everybody finds out about it right away. So even after Domitian's death and removal from office, there were a lot of his edicts and instructions and and so forth that were still carried out because they hadn't gotten word yet to the outer reaches of the empire that he's gone and there's a new guy in town. So the church was under tremendous stress, tremendous stress, and as a result, Jesus appears to John in the Isle, on the Isle of Patmos, and he gives him instruction. Now, notice what he says. He said, well, let me read it let, rather than refer to it. Let me read it again. Notice it says in verse 11, Jesus said, the great voice like a trumpet said, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now, notice the next thing that he said. He said, what thou seest, write in a book. And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And he mentions the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now on a map, these things kind of, these seven churches kind of make a circular route. Ephesus is the port city. And if you start going north and east, it kind of makes a clockwise circle. Not exact, but sort of like a circle. Circular route from one to the other the chances are John is preached in all of these churches. The probability is, and and documentation for most of it, not all of it, but most of it is documented, that these churches started as a result of Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 19. It talks about how that Paul stayed there for three and a half years in Ephesus, and the Lord opened the doors of utterance so that all of Asia heard the word in those three-year period, in that three-year period of time. Paul was probably not the one that started these churches other than the church at Ephesus. These were disciples of his, people that had been saved in his ministry. So he became kind of the spiritual grandfather for all of these churches. But now he's been off the scene. He's been dead now for about 28 years. So John has become the spiritual father to all these churches. The furthest church from where John lived was about 65 miles these churches are within 25 miles to 65 miles of each other. So it's, it's, 
would certainly be expected that John would have made these, this, this circular route at different times, especially when he was younger, and that these pastors from these churches, the leaders of these churches, would have easily been able to make the trip to see John any time they wanted to, basically. So John knows who these churches are. He knows who these churches are. But the point that I want to make to you is, Jesus said, write this in a book and send it to them. How's he going to get a message from a prison island from Alcatraz, which is what the Isle of Patmos was? How's he going to get a message to these churches? Well, Jesus knew what John didn't know, and that was that he was going to be released. So what does that tell us? That tells us that this message didn't get to him for a year or maybe two years after he received it. And again, Jesus said, write it in a book. Make a book out of this. So it took him a while to get that done. John identifies that he sent the book, but not from Patmos. Now notice in, uh, um, notice in verse 9. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the island that is called Patmos. Didn't say I am there now. He said I was there. We have records that John went back to Ephesus after he was released and lived there in his home for another several years before his passing of a natural death. The only one of the disciples that passed, a, passed away from a natural uh, or experienced a natural death, I should say. And notice what he starts off with in verse 9. He says, I, John, as I mentioned before, he mentions his name three times. Finally, he says, it's me, John. It's me. The reason for that is because the news of what had happened to him had gone so far and wide that a lot of people wouldn't have believed it was him if he didn't make this special emphasis on it's me. It's really me. Yeah, that boiling with all stuff really happened, but I'm alive. Yeah, I was sent to the Isle of Patmos, and I know nobody ever gets out of there, but look at what God did to deliver us. It's me. And then notice what he says. He says, I'm your brother. He doesn't say, I'm your spiritual father. He says, I'm your brother, and I'm a companion of yours in the tribulations. In the tribulations. For the testimony of Jesus Christ. Folks, let me ask you something. And I I don't have a martyr's wish. But let me ask you something. What would you do if you lived in their day where any day could be your last simply by refusing to confess Caesar as your Lord. What would you do? I'm not sure there'd be too many people that stand up nowadays. But it was a common occurrence in John's day, in the day of the revelation. It was a common occurrence for people to be brought to trial just simply because they would not confess Caesar as their Lord. What would you do? What would it take for you to have that kind of conviction to be willing to lay down your life if it meant denying Jesus? In a lot of ways, a persecuted church is a stronger church because these are questions whereas we may never even have to consider, really consider it from a reality standpoint. A persecuted church has to live under that reality. We've told you stories how people in different countries are praying for the church in America to be persecuted. 
Because in many cases, that's the only thing that makes the church wake up. Modern day church, the American church is arguing about comfort issues. Do we dump? Do we sprinkle? That's going to win the lost. That's going to get the world on the right track on it. When we finally settle the issue of what's our baptismal principles in practice, what method do we use? But that's what the modern-day American church is arguing about. The early church didn't have a chance to argue about things like that. They had to live their faith. So John begins to tell what Jesus said. Now I'm going to, because I told the joke and, and I told it for a reason, I'll get to it in a minute, but I want to back up and see what John saw. Verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake unto me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man. Notice he didn't say it was Jesus. Jesus identifies himself. But this is not like a Jesus he's ever seen before. One likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about with paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. That's the third time that he mentions past, present, and future events. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, the reason that I made the joke to begin with and then wanted to reread it the second time is very simply this. John saw Jesus in a form he had never seen him before. Now think about what's John seen. John saw him in his earthly ministry. John identifies himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. He's seen Jesus' eyes. He's looked in Jesus' eyes and seen pools of living love. That's not what he saw this time. He saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. One of the first ones to see him, as a matter of fact. What did he see? He saw Jesus saying, don't be afraid. It's me. No hair white with white as wool. No eyes as a flame of fire. He still saw him with love, his eyes of love. Loving eyes saying, I'm here for you guys. Why would Jesus appear to John this, in this manner, as recorded in Revelation 1, at the time that he did because of the threat that the church is under from the Roman government. See, folks, the Roman government was the most powerful force on the face of the earth. And the church had every reason, Christians, individual Christians, as well as church congregations, had every reason to fear what is the Roman government going to do to us. But Jesus appears in such a manner 
that causes John to fall at his feet like he's dead. In other words, Jesus appears to him in obvious power. But Jesus immediately touches him and says, don't be afraid. This power is not against you. Well, then who's the power against is to protect the church against the government. Is to protect the church against the forces of the enemy working on the face of the earth in the manner that it was. Jesus is there saying, Caesar may look like top dog, but look at me. The next Caesar that comes along may not be friendly to you, but look at me. Things may get worse from a natural standpoint, from a political standpoint, maybe even from an economic standpoint, but look at me. And then he tells him a mystery, shows him the mystery, reveals to him the mystery. When Jesus speaks to John and John finally turns around, he sees golden candlesticks, seven golden candlesticks and seven stars. These things have meanings, meanings that are unclear for us because of the difference in the days that we live. So let's talk about what it meant to them. What is a candlestick? Well, a candlestick is not like something that we're accustomed to where you put a wax candle in a little hole and burn the candle. Things like that hadn't been invented yet. So this candlestick is to hold light, but the only light they had were these little oil lamps. Now, the oil lamps were common, probably the most common thing in, in, uh, in the world because they were usually made of clay, little pottery pieces that contained oil and had a little hole in them. Uh, if you can imagine Aladdin's lamp on a smaller scale, it was like that, only sometimes they didn't have handles. But it had a little hole on one end where you stuck a little piece of cloth or a cord, and when the cord was soaked in the oil, then you lit the cord, and it provided lamp, light for the, for the house or wherever you put it. Well, then what were candlesticks for? Candlesticks doesn't mean candle like what we know of. It means lamp stands. And the only thing they had were these little oil lamps. So there's one of two possibilities for this, and that is this, uh, it's a, uh, a vertical pole of some type to which you put one of these little clay oil lamps on top of. Or it's holding something that's more conducive or more that blends in better with the gold of the candlestick. In other words, maybe it's a brass lamp. Maybe it's a golden lamp. We don't know. But what we do know is this. We know that the Bible says John noticed that, first of all, they were golden candlesticks, and Jesus confirms that. He said the seven golden candlesticks were the churches. A, a candlestick does not produce light. It's not the source of light. It displays light. And you need to understand that about the church. I, I hear all the time people saying, well, I'm, I'm not religious. I'm, I don't believe in uh, organized religion. I don't believe in the church. I, I can be just as good a Christian staying at home as I can going to church. Jesus seems to disagree because he says the light is not the candlestick, is not the church. Our congregation is not the light. The light is in you. But there's something about us gathering together that displays that light. There's something about us gathering together that's precious in the sight of God. Do you know who had golden candlesticks in those days? Nobody. Nobody had golden candlesticks. The richest person around wouldn't have a golden candlestick. 
because that's not the way you display gold. If you're going to have gold, if you're going to use gold as a, as a, a sign of prestige or power or influence or whatever the case is, wealth, you're not going to use it on a candlestick. But it's precious to God because it's the display of light. And that light costs Jesus his blood. Jesus said that we're the light of the world. Well, then how does Jesus want us to display that light together? Working hand in hand, caring about one another, joined to one another with common purposes. Saying the same thing, believing the same things and so forth. That's what, the that's what the gold signifies. It signifies that it costs God a lot. Now, the seven stars have a different meaning, and it was, again, that's a meaning that's a little bit blind to us, but had a specific understanding on their part. Domitian, the Roman emperor, the Caesar, pronounced himself as Lord and God. He was the first of the Roman emperors to, to use those terms. There were different terms that other ones used, but he pronounced himself and commanded everybody to call him Lord and God. He had a son that died in, as a child. Well, his son was then declared to be the son of God. Now, Domitian, after his son's death, Domitian, to commemorate his son, his son and his life, had coins printed up, minted. And these coins, they have, uh, they have them today. On one side is the face of Domitian. On the other side is an is uh, image of a young boy. But it's not just a face. It's a young boy and his, his uh, uh, body and his form is surrounded by seven stars. And he's got his hands out like he's playing with these seven stars. When Jesus appears in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks and says, I have the seven stars in my hand, he's saying Domitian is not God. His son is not the son of God. And he's not playing with the stars. I am. John would know this. We don't. We have to study history to figure out what some of these things mean. Now, the last thing I want to leave you with this morning, and we don't want to get into the letters yet, but the last thing I want to really talk to you about this morning is when Jesus, what it says about Jesus and the stars and the candlesticks. Let me back up again and start with the end of verse 17. Jesus, when he lays his hand on John, says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. I am he that liveth and was dead. Boy, just that sentence could set you on fire. I am he that liveth and was dead. He's not just talking about physical death, folks. Jesus was the first begotten from the spiritual death. He was first begotten from spiritually dead, from being spiritually dead. You don't have a new birth that's like Jesus. If Jesus was born again, that means he was the first begotten from the dead. It means he was the first person born again. Well, you were born again, weren't you? Well, what's your born again experience compared to his? One and the same. One and the same. I, I, the Lord really dealt with me about this some time ago because I, I, I don't know, somehow or another, I, I guess I was thinking religiously. Not really intending to, but a lot of times we do without thinking about it. And if we don't consider our thoughts, then we don't realize we are. But I was thinking about things in terms of me versus Jesus. And I saw Jesus way up here and I saw me way down here. And the Lord really challenged me on that. And he used this scripture 
in the Bible, several of them actually, but where it talks about Jesus being the first begotten from the dead. Jesus was not the first begotten from physical death. The Bible talks about in the Old Testament how there were different times where people were raised from the dead. The guy that was the dead guy that was thrown into Elijah's tomb, or Elisha's tomb, I guess it was Elisha. And once he touched his bones, he revived and went running out of the tomb. You remember the story how the two guys that were out burying him saw the enemy. And so they threw him in here real quick. Maybe they didn't know where they were throwing him. When he touched the, the bones, he comes running out. Now these guys are really running away. So Jesus was not the first begotten or firstborn from, from physical death. Well, then how was he the first begotten from the dead? has to be spiritually. That means Jesus had to be dead spiritually. Now, I know that's a tough thing for a lot of people. I know the big question for some and the, and the place where a lot of people will depart from listening to the truth and so forth is they say, well, how could the Son of God die? Well, there's only one way, and that is for God to make him death for your sake. In other words, for him to die your death. He couldn't die on his own. He had to die by taking on your sins, which is exactly what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says God made him to be sin for you. He knew no sin, but he was made sin for you. Well, then when he died spiritually, what happens? The idea that Jesus could take up his own life again from that point is ridiculous. The spiritually dead can't control their own life. If he died spiritually, that means he had to be completely and totally in the hands of God. It had to be outside of his control or ability to do anything for himself. But the Bible says that when the price was paid, when we were justified, God raised Jesus from the dead. How could he do that? By making Jesus born again. By recreating Jesus in spirit, just like he recreates you and me. Somehow or another, that's had a, a, a tremendous impact on me. I've got the same new birth experience that Jesus had. I've got the same new birth experience that Jesus had, and so do you. Jesus wasn't made more righteous than you because his righteousness was given to him just like yours is. He was righteous on his own before he laid down his life, but once he laid down his life, he lost that righteousness. So what is the righteousness that he has now? The same as yours, the righteousness of God. Yours is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. His was the righteousness of God because of his sacrifice, because he was fulfilling the plan of God. You're just as righteous as Jesus is. That's hard to accept, isn't it? It's hard to wrap your mind around, but it has to be true. It has to be true because that's the only righteousness that can get you into heaven. That's the only righteousness that can get, that can give God a legitimate reason, an opportunity to turn his face away from your sin. It has to be true. So Jesus has the seven stars in his hands. Now this word stars, I'm sorry, this word angels, it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Let me make one, uh, one final comment about this and, and the, 
Here again, this is a little difficult for us to understand because of the different day that we live in. But the line between humans and what they consider to be, they meaning pagan, the pagan culture of the day, the Roman Empire, and the Greek culture that had influenced the Roman Empire, the line between their idea of humans and God was a real thin line. They didn't sit, sit back and think of one God in the heaven like we do. They worshipped 10, 15, 20, however many gods happened to have temples on the street. They'd burn incense to anybody and everybody, trying to affect the weather, trying to affect the crops, trying to affect anything and everything, nature, people, and so forth. So the idea of angels, we think of angels as being heavenly beings. This word angel just simply means messenger. It's not talking about the angels of God. In this context, it's talking about the messenger of the churches. Now, the only difference or distinction that it makes which would, that would uh, justify Jesus illustrating them as stars, notice both the candlestick and the, light and the stars represent light. The stars represent light that comes from heaven. The message, therefore, that he's referring to, the messenger, and therefore the message that's being carried to the churches is a message from heaven. And it says that Jesus is walking among the candlesticks. He's walking among the churches. Now, we're going to find out when we look at the letters of the churches that a church can lose its candlestick. If a church does the wrong things or ceases to do the right things, a church can lose its candlestick. Doesn't mean it stops being a church. Doesn't mean people lose their salvation. Doesn't mean they quit having services. It means Jesus quits walking among them. Now the word walking among, walking in the midst, the way it's translated in the English, walking in the midst of the candlesticks, it literally denotes a familiarity. It denotes a, a, a personal knowledge, personal contact that very few words do. It's talking about Jesus having personal knowledge of the churches. It's talking about Jesus being totally occupied with the state of the churches. And again, this is important for them because in many cases, in many situations, I'm sure they felt, in many circumstances, they felt like God had abandoned them to the whims of the Roman government. Whereas Jesus is appearing with a message for John to tell these churches, I'm right in the middle of you. I see everything that's going on. I'm right in the middle of you. I'm occupied with you. And this is not Jesus, the son of man, while he was here on the earth. This is a guy with white hair and flames of fire in his eyes. This is the resurrected Jesus in power. And he says, I am totally occupied, totally committed to you in the churches. Notice John does not see him seated at the right hand of God. That's what we think about Jesus being, isn't it? We think about Jesus seated at the right hand of God. That's not where John sees him. John sees him walking, occupied with the state of the churches. Working with the messengers to those churches to make sure those messages are the ones that they should be. 
That's where Jesus is now. Now, the fact that he says, send this letter to the churches, and, and he didn't just say, send this to each church. He said, write a book and send it to seven churches. In other words, the church at Laodicea is going to see what he said to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus is going to see what he said to Sardis. The church at Sardis is going to see what he said to Pergamum and everybody else. He said, write this in a book. Thank God we've got the book. Because the same things that replied to the churches in those days are going to apply to churches today. Some of the circumstances may be different. For example, he's going to talk about certain doctrines that were in the churches, false doctrines that were in the churches then. Well, we may know of different false doctrines. We know of different type of doctrines that attack the church today, but it's still the same principle. So it seems to me that if it was important enough for Jesus to appear to a guy in a political prison on a desert island to give a message to the churches, then the churches today ought to know something about those messages, shouldn't they? Well, let me ask this. Do we? Very few of us know anything much at all. We may know that one of them lost their first love. We may know one of them is lukewarm. But what do we know? seems to me that these messages that were important enough to, to necessitate an appearance of Jesus in a totally new form, totally new manner, should be important enough for us to judge ourselves by, to make sure we're on the right, stand, right track. Because I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to lose a candlestick. Church without the Spirit of God or without being God-directed is the least attractive thing in the world to me. That's the way it's going to be. I quit. Because I know I don't have what you need. I know it's not in me. Except God gives it to me. To help you navigate through the trials and tribulations of life. Especially where the way it looks like the world's headed. Folks, it wouldn't surprise me at all. If persecution arises in the church in our country, like we would have never thought possible, what are we going to do then? I say we get prepared up front. What about you? I'm going to read it one last time. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, right in the middle, walking among them, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with pounce, a girt about the pounce with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his water as the sound of many waters, his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. I don't know about you, but that part blesses me. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. His countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. 
and I have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Folks, I want you to realize something, and that is one thing Jesus did not want you to misunderstand about the vision, and that, and we can all agree that there's a lot of misunderstanding. has to be because there's so many varying opinions about what the book of Revelation means and stands for and represents and so forth, right? Everybody can't be right. The one thing Jesus wanted to make sure that we did not miss out on understanding was his relationship with the church. His relationship with the church. I think it would do us well to realize that we're not just a gathering of people. But that the power of God himself is in and available to this place. As with every church that's operating according to his direction. We need to see ourselves as having access to the greater power. Not subject to the world. Not subject to the government. Not subject to tax laws or whatever. Those things are fine. I'm not saying rebel against that stuff. But I don't care what they do to the tax laws. I don't care what they just say or threaten the church with. I don't care what they determine that we can or can't say from the pulpit. I don't care about any of those things because this is the guy that's behind us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you in advance, Father, for teaching us that which we need to know. For revealing to us who we are and who we need to live up to be. I thank you, Father, that Jesus is in the midst of this church. I thank you that he's directing us and guiding us. He's building us as his church. And, Father, I pray that you would direct us by the Holy Ghost within our own lives and our own hearts. That we would live up to who Jesus died for us to be. That we'd walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. That, Lord, our light would be on display because it costs you so much. I pray, Father, that you would quicken us by the Holy Ghost, that this would be the time, this would be the year that we'd make the adjustments that need to be made, that we would turn loose of the things that hold us back, that we would make a one-time, once-and-for-all commitment that it's you that we'll focus on. Above all else, no matter whatever else happens, in Jesus' name, everybody that agrees with that, say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand together. One of the best ways we can get started on that is to pray. Amen. Pray to find the mind of God and pray that the will of God would be accomplished in the earth. To that end, if you can, join us tonight at 5 o'clock in the fellowship hall where we pray every Sunday evening. Amen. We love you. God bless you. You're dismissed.